Hello, and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI president Robert Dorr, and we'll be your new Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Today, we'll be speaking with Dan Cox. He's a research fellow in polling and public opinion here at AEI and the director of AEI's new Survey Center on American Life. Dan specializes in survey research, politics, culture and identity, and religion. Before joining AEI, he was the research director at the Public Religion Research Institute, which he co-founded. Dan holds a master's and a PhD in American government from Georgetown University, where he focused on public opinion, political behavior, and religion and politics. Welcome to Banter, Dan. It's great to be here. Great. So to start out, could you just tell us a little bit, um, we like to ask this of all our guests, just how did you come to AEI? And maybe you can give us a little overview of this new survey center that you just launched. Sure. Well, I've been at AI a little bit less than two years, came at the beginning of 2019, which now seems like a really, really long time ago. Uh, and uh, really the person who was instrumental in me coming here is, is Carlin Bowman, who I've known for a number of years. And while at um, my, my last gig, I was a co-founder of Public Religion Research Institute, a small uh, research center focusing on religion and politics. The sort of surprising thing that happened when I was there was that we ended up doing surveys that were not focused on religion, which is one of the things I really cared about. So I started looking around and wanted to find a place where I could do more of this work. And, and Carlin, uh, I reached out to Carlin, and she's like, come talk to folks at AI. Uh, they'll, they'll love what you're doing, and, and I think they'll really understand it. And she was right, as she has about a lot of things. And so um, a few conversations later, and here I am. That's great. We're glad to have you. Now, now, Phoebe is all interested in the hot, hot issue, the new issue, the, <laughs> the, the issue that plagues us, conspiracy theories. So mm -hmm. you, you want to ask Dan about that first? Yeah, sure. So you just had this conspiracy theory report come out, very timely, very topical. I want to start out with a, a really basic question. What makes something a conspiracy theory? What, wh how did you decide when you were analyzing that? Yeah, so this was uh, a collaboration between AI and actually the Center for American Progress, where we work together to identify some of the existing conspiracy theories that were out there. And I think, yeah, it's a great question. What's the difference between misinformation and something that's a conspiracy theory? Mm -hmm. And we really uh, used the sort of published media reports as sort of a guide. So, so things that were out there, uh, whether it's sort of the Obama birther conspiracy, things that were demonstrably false that people still believed in, or things that like Trump's ties to Russia and this idea that Putin might somehow have some leverage over Trump, uh, which is no evidence for that at all. And those are the kinds of things that we wanted to ask about. Mm -hmm. Things that were demonstra demonstrably false, provably false, and things of which there was no uh, supporting or corroborating evidence. We focused not just on politics, but some public health ones as well. So we asked folks about whether um, companies are promoting GMOs, that's genetically modified organisms, uh, in foods, um, whether there's a link between autism and childhood vaccines. And we've, we found some, you know, fairly different results depending on uh, people's personal backgrounds and politics. Yeah. So do, do people believe this stuff and why? Yeah, I mean, short answer, yes, uh, to some degree. Now, none of the conspiracy theories had a uh, majority believing that they were accurate, um, but among some of the, particularly the politically motivated ones, 
So the one about, uh, you know, this idea that President Putin has damaging information about Trump, a majority of Democrats believe that. And then for Republicans, um, a significant number. I think even uh, including Nancy Pelosi. I think Nancy Pelosi believes it. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's well sort of documented um, and, and well sort of traveled in, in sort of the more liberal media. But on the other hand, um, a majority of Republicans uh, are convinced that there's a, this coordinated effort of the deep state, you know, this group of this cabal of unelected government officials that are working to purposely to undermine the Trump administration. So that Democrats and Republicans are finding these these um, sort of convenient untruths and, and and you know running with it. So have American people be gotten dumber and and more easily influenced, or are they being manipulated in a more sophisticated ways? Well, I, I think certainly, and, and if you look at the levels of education, right, Americans have more formal education than they did a generation ago. But the media environment, media landscape has shifted dramatically. And then trust in institutions, something that we've, and a lot of AI scholars have looked at uh, a lot, um, is it, just declined across the board, whether you're talking about police or religion, the federal government, Congress, the judiciary, um, nearly every major institution uh, in, in, our, in our politics and our society uh, has seen an erosion of public trust. And I think that has a huge uh, role to play that people don't know where to where to go uh, to to really find sort of definitive supported information. And then on the other hand, the internet is just such an easy way to sort of spread falsehoods or things that are not quite true or accurate. And it's this stuff is so easy to get online, and it's very easy to go you know find yourself sucked down rabbit hole through social media, and a lot of people have written on that, whether it's coming from Reddit or 4chan, um, these places online, which are not vetted, that people can kind of post whatever they want. And so I think that and it can be incredibly dangerous, that co- the combination of those two, those two things. So is the loss in, I mean, your surveys, you talk to a lot of people, you get a lot of questions answered. In the loss of confidence in public institutions, is it because our culture, our movies, our our novels, our major media just constantly bombards them with derogatory information about religious organizations, the Catholic Church, the federal government, our public leaders, and they just have have come to believe what they heard, which is that they can't trust anybody. Or is it that they have bad families and lower education levels and they're all on drugs? I mean... Did we did the culture do it to us or did we do it to ourselves? You're absolutely right that everybody at AI, I mean, you say that when I pass them in the hall, God, we've lost faith in our institutions. <laughs> and it's just it's like a core belief of, of, of the at least Americans have, not we, but Americans have. And what I I never am quite sure, and I wonder what your research tells you. Is how, why did that happen? Did the did the is it Hollywood's fault? Is it the major media? Is it that we're just told every day that you can't trust anyone anymore and that everyone's corrupt, or are our more personal family and and our own attachment to religion is that leading us to then have no faith in institutions? Why why has this happened, and why is it so prevalent? Yeah, um, and, and this is a, a question that you know has vexed you know plenty of smart folks, and I, I don't have 
you know, the one conclusive answer, but I, I do know some things uh, in regards to, yeah, just how these things are related. So if you look at the decline in trust in, in religious institutions that, you know, we saw it, it plummeted in the early 2000s in, in response partly to the, the Catholic sex abuse scandal. Um, and it, that was a, a national scandal in some ways, right? It was confined in the Catholic church, but it affected people who weren't even Catholic. Mm -hmm. um, and what we do know as well is that these things are related. Um, decline in one group of institutions was correlated with declines in, in trust in other institutions. So uh, we see a, a really strong association between whether it's church or, you know, federal and local government, um, the, the, you know, police, all these things are kind of moving in tandem. Uh, the other thing that we, we know is that it's, also, if you read Robert Putnam's work in, in Bowling Alone way back in, in 2000, I think the decline in civil society is also playing a role in, in all this, where we had breakdowns in just the amount of time Americans are spending together, are participating in, in local civic life. And, and that is a, a huge part, I think, of, of why you've seen this decreased trust. And then I think on both the left and the right, you have um, seen in, in some ways uh, attacks on certain institutions that are viewed as hostile to their values. So whether it's the left, uh, some folks on the left, uh, secular left attacking religion, uh, and then folks on the right are attacking higher ed uh, for political, politically motivated reasons, I think that also has led to sort of a, of a breakdown. The other thing, and something that's sort of a thing that I have a bee in my bonnet about is, is actually media, and particularly social media, and how that's transformed the way we get our news and think about news. Um, you know, I see so many reporters, uh, people who are smart and good at their job, kind of leading with opinion uh, on these social media platforms. Like, well, you know, you're not an opinion columnist. That's not really your role to provide sort of facts and information. And I think that does kind of a disservice. We've, we've come to be a lot more focused on both in politics and in media, like persona driven. We, we care so much about whether it's AOC or Trump, um, the, these kind of political media personas, and they drive a lot of this stuff. So let's just go to basics of your research, and that is surveys. And, you know, polling data has come into some criticism of late. And uh, the question I have for you is, are, 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 are you, why are you confident that what people tell you in your surveys is accurate or representative? Um, the best answer for this is really that we get corroboration. And I, whenever I talk to, I was talking to a group of high school students earlier this week, and this is a question that, you know, as, as a pollster, you just have to be prepared to answer. And, you know, one of the things I always say is that you should never look at a poll in isolation, that there's no survey, no matter how well it's done, no, no matter how large it is, no matter how methodologically rigorous it is can be the definitive answer to any particular issue or question. That, you know, when we see the same pattern in the data uh, from surveys that are conducted uh, from a variety of different places um, that use different methodologies, uh, and they all sort of point to the same basic truth, that really gives us confidence that, that what we're measuring is right. And one of the unfortunate things that's happened is that a lot of Americans their, their first exposure to polling is, is horse race polling. And the horse race polling is, is designed to, to give you a snapshot of what the electorate 
thinks at a certain moment in time. It, they were not designed to be predictive, which is what we come to expect. It was like, well, you know, the, the polling's accurate if it's predictive of, of the outcome of, of a particular election. And that is not what surveys were actually designed to do. And so in some ways, you know, we're asking something that's a bit unfair of survey research, which is a, just a methodology, you know, not any different than ethnographic interviewing, uh, qualitative research. Um, it's just a way to get at uh, some amount of, of facts and, and information. And so I think, you know, when we think about the survey research, most of the stuff that gets done, most of the work that I do is not horse race stuff. Right? It's not predictive. Um, we're looking at at a lot of experiential stuff. So how does living close to a restaurant, bar, community park, coffee shop influence your, your connection to people in your community? Those are, those are the kind of, kind of things that, that we survey on. Um, we're, we're interested in, in community life and American life and religious life. And uh, you know, there's, no, there's no survey that's going to sort of definitively say, yes, this is, this is the quote unquote truth of this quote unquote fact. Um, but when we see, you know, across many surveys, a decline in, in religious observance and religious identity uh, in survey over survey, we know something's happening. Uh, you know, that's, I think, the best answer I can give to, to why we should trust it. And then the, the other thing is, like, what, you know, what's the alternative, too, right? So is it kind of anecdotal, impressionistic reporting? There's some great reporting out there where, you know, folks have really engaged conversations with voters or other religious folks and we get a picture of their life, what they care about, but it's not generalizable. This is a very large country that is a very diverse country. And so really public opinion research is one of the only ways where we can really tell a, a national story about what's going on. So when I read one of your results of your surveys or where our readers do, how should I think that that survey took place? In other words, was it a bunch of people in contracted working out of a sort of a phone shop, making a lot of calls and, and finally getting through with people to get them to participate in a 30-minute or an hour-long conversation? Or is it you? Is it, is it you actually doing the interviews? And, I mean, how, how do they get executed? What's your preferred way of executing a survey? So, yeah, things have changed a lot in, in survey research over the last decade or two. When I was, was beginning my career in the, you know, in the mid-2000s, uh, 2006, 2007, uh, one of the, the concerns was the rising uh, cell phone use among the public, particularly among young people. And, you know, traditionally the, the way that survey, surveyors got in touch with the public was they, they had a phone bank and they dialed a, a bunch of numbers um, on people's landline phones, and, and they did it through the process of what's called random digit dialing. Uh, with the rise of cell phone use, that was creating problems. And so what researchers had to do is begin dialing landlines and cell phones, and the proportion of cell phone calls went up and up and up. Uh, now, I think people that still do telephone interviewing, it's something like 80 or 90% cell phone. Um, more recently, what's happened is there have been a, a switch to online interviewing. So uh, these, these large companies, whether it's Ipsos or YouGov or NORC at the University of Chicago, they run these, these very large panels. So they, they've recruited folks to be um, survey participants, and they get some amount of uh, incentive to answer uh, a survey regularly, whether it's, it's monthly or, or, or more often. And um, for the, the places that I trust the most do this 
probabilistically. So they, they get, everyone gets an equal opportunity to be a part of the survey, even people without internet uh, or computers. So they are provided those things so they can, they can contribute. Um, so the, the panel at the end of the day is not biased. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of uh, data, data vendors that we use. So I'm not there calling, I'm not there administering the surveys. Um, we have these, these data vendors, whether it's Ipsos or NRC doing it. And we design the questions, we design the structure of the survey, the language that is used are also, you know, myself and, and my colleagues at the survey center do, and then we test it and then it's fielded through email uh, and we get our results back in, in 10 days to a couple weeks. And we, you know, the survey is weighted to make sure that it's reflective of the, the national adult population in the U.S. And then we, you know, we do the analysis and write up the results. So, Dan, I'm curious, one of the phenomenons that has drawn a lot of scrutiny in, in polling and surveys in the past couple of years has been this phenomenon of the kind of silent Trump voter, right? So the person who on the phone won't say that they want to vote for Trump, but then goes ahead and does it. One of the things that comes through from work that I read a lot is that Americans have lost faith in institutions. Americans are more polarized. Americans believe conspiracy theories. Um, and that raises an issue that whether the surveys are revealing a loss of human capital, that, 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 that Americans aren't as solid, is one way to put it, as, as they maybe were 30 years ago and 50 years ago. Um, do you believe that? Yeah, so there's there's some ways that I think things have gotten um, more challenging, when you, particularly when you think politically. Like the the rise of political polarization is absolutely real, uh, and and sort of a, a part of that is something called affective polarization, which is this tendency for partisans not to like each other, uh, partisan animus. And since the mid '90s, the percentage of Democrats and Republicans who have viewed the opposing party negatively has has soared. It's it's tripled over that time period. And one of the things that, that we've done in our work is try to understand, well, how is that the sort of broad trend in, in polarization impacting Americans' lives? And actually, we're seeing it uh, in a number of different ways. So if you look at, at marriages between Democrats and Republicans, that's actually declining. Uh, so since the early 70s, uh, it was only about half of newlyweds shared the same political affiliation, so 54%. If you look by the, uh, 2014, it's now up to three quarters of newlyweds. So political identity is, is become a salient feature in terms of our dating decisions. And we, we conducted this kind of fun poll in, in February ahead of Valentine's Day, looking at and asking people directly the role of politics in their romantic decision making. And it, it is playing a role, particularly for Democrats, particularly for Democratic women. Uh, politics has become a really salient factor. Mm. And so that's, that's an issue. Uh, and we know that's an issue because people who have uh, and are surrounded by only their co-partisans behave really differently from folks who have more politically diverse social networks and, and social contact. They tend to be more extreme in their attitudes, whether it's abortion or LGBT issues or, or racial issues. Across the, the board, uh, they tend to, to go to the extreme they also tend to be much less open-minded uh, and much less likely to, to be sort of a hardened uh, position. So they're, they're not likely as likely to sort of listen to the other side. The election, what are the odds that we can kind of 
come together a little bit and, and take some of the heat out of our politics. And one of the things I think is going to be really important is for uh, Democrats and Republicans to feel comfortable arguing more often, not less. They should be engaging more and not sort of proceeding to their to their side, whatever their you know their corner of the of the turf. Uh, and that's I think something that you know, we haven't spent a lot of time uh, looking at when we sort of think about how to increase uh, the just the the way we engage politically. But, but uh, and I think that's a really important part of it. Yeah, but you're you're basically saying that a increased animosity toward the other political party or people in the other political party is a sign of of tension or a degradation in American life. And compared to 1970 or or 1980 that's cl- I see I see that, but but there have been other periods in American history where the intensity of the opposition in between the parties was, I mean, you know, the, the old, the old anti FDR people, you know, used to refer to that man in the white house. And I'm, you know, I'm there's, that was pretty intense too. And of course the civil war, we fought over it. So I, I just wonder whether, whether that's an, uh, that just, that, that, that's not all that new in American life. Uh, if you look at the longer picture, or 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 maybe that's not something you you study or know about, but what do you think about that? Yeah, so I think I think in aggregate that's that's absolutely right. You know, there's been some really fierce uh, and personal uh, political attacks and and the way we engage. The thing that I think is new is the the salient of political identity and it it influencing kind of everyday personal decisions. So just to give you an example. Uh, if you look at online dating, there, that's not been around a long time, but the, a lot of places, whether it's OkCupid or, or these, some of the new places that, that are doing this, what they're seeing among their users is interest in sorting prospective uh, romantic uh, partners by their politics. So I, I don't want to date anyone who doesn't agree with me on abortion or have a different view of Trump than I do. And the, because of social media and, and online dating, people can sort themselves really, really well. Uh, in a way, you're not meeting folks through church as much. You're not meeting folks through work as much. It, you're, you're using online platforms, and there's something that is just not helpful in terms of, of, you know, we're really good at social sorting. We've done it, you know, humans do this very, very well. And the Internet has just kind of supersized it and made it even easier. So that's something that is new. And that's and and social sorting and division are the same thing. You just divide, 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 mm-hmm. pull people apart. I know. I wonder how much of this is is the dating apps themselves, and how much of it is our political climate. I mean, do you think that do you do you see people overwhelmingly sorting by politics more than they sort by by other things? I mean, I don't know. Being the young one here, there's you know lots of people sort by height, by location, by lots of factors. Do you education. Think it's education. Yeah. Do you race, think it's income? Hmm. Is it, are we just sorting too much in general? Yeah. So it, if you if you look at the the ways people sort, I think one of the biggest ones is by race and ethnicity. So when we there's a recent survey that we just did that looked at uh, we looked at social sorting in politics and social sorting in race, and we're much more socially segregated when it comes to race than than politics. Uh, it's not even close, in fact. So just to give you a, a stat here, 
So 77% of white Americans have no person of color in their immediate social network. So this isn't sort of in, including the acquaintances and, and you know, colleagues that are more distant. This is like your sort of immediate social network and uh, we're highly socially segregated. Uh, and we see it across the board, but it's really pronounced among whites and to a lesser extent among black Americans, um, while Hispanics and Asian Americans actually have more diverse social networks. And that's just, you know, geographically white Americans are so much more, uh, such a larger percentage of the population than, than these other groups. Um, but you, we do see it uh, pretty significant sorting. Uh, I, I think we are sort of by class as well. I don't have any fingers for that. And also by religion as well. Although one of the really interesting things, if you look at religion and race, is we're actually becoming more integrated in those ways. Uh, race uh, and religion versus politics, we're, going, we're heading in the opposite direction. So if you look at the proportion of people who are in interracial marriages or interreligious marriages, those numbers are just keep going up and up and up. Um, and then the, our political intermarriages is actually going down. So it's, it's trending in the wrong direction. So a lot of people who are thinkers and journalists and columnists use survey data to sort of bolster their case. And, and David Brooks does it a lot. There are others, people here at AI. Who is someone that uses your work, uses the results of your work well to explain what's happening in America? Hmm. That's a really good question. Uh, I do think there's a lot of really good work out there. I, I admire Ron Brownstein a lot. Uh, I think he writes for The Atlantic. Mm -hmm. And he's been someone who's paid a lot of attention to how this wave of demographic change in, in the U.S. is impacting our politics, is impacting how people sort of feel uh, about broader American culture. And he's someone actually who takes religion uh, very seriously. And that's something that I, I think has been a a blind spot in the past uh, among a lot of political journalists is that when they think about American politics, it's a lot about race, it's a lot about class, but religion, unless it's evangelical, white evangelical Christians, doesn't really uh, get star billing. And it matters a heck of a lot. Uh, I, I may be biased in, in, that, in that regard, but I, I just think that you can't really understand American politics without really a fundamental understanding of American religion. Uh, Russ Dapit at the time obviously does a lot of wonderful work on this. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much he, he relies on survey data, uh, like Ron Brassing will write. I don't think he writes a column that does not have uh, survey data in it. But, but Ross is someone who I, I really respect in terms of, of how, he, how he looks at some of this stuff. So you, you brought up the issue of demographic change in the United States, and that's, you know, that's a big story. Demographics are changing dramatically. And, and of course, the, the cliche of it is that the Democrats are counting on that because immigrant populations, especially from South America, uh, are more likely to um, vote Democratic, vote liberal, be comfortable with the collective as opposed to the individual. And are you saying that that may or may not be true because it may actually be about, well, what is their religious affiliation? That may affect where their politics comes down more than their uh, ethnic or racial uh, status. There, there's a really interesting book, uh, and it's interesting not for what it says now, but what the argument that was proposed, and this is back in, I think, the early 2000s, called The Emerging Democratic Majority. 
And the basic argument is one that I think Democrats uh, bought into uh, and did so at, at a significant cost. And this was that demographics would ultimately produce lasting democratic majorities that obviously ha hasn't happened. We're a closely divided country politically. But uh, if you do look at political or demographic change over the, over the coming 10, 20, 30 years, and the religious change that's accompanying it, uh, it's really difficult to see if you look at the current coalitions of Democrats and Republicans, that the Republicans can be a, you know, a competitive national party in 20 years. Uh, if Texas flips, and it looks like it's maybe a couple elections before that actually happens, but if it moves into purple and, you know, a slightly blue hue, I think that's kind of game over. One of the things that I think that, that this argument does not take account for is the fact that the coalitions are changing and they change as the demographics change and the culture changes. And I think a group that I would really want to be watching very closely are Hispanics. They are not a, a as strong a democratic constituency as African American Protestants, mm -hmm. or African Americans and African American Protestants. And one of the things that, when we think about democratic loyalty and Republican loyalty, uh, is that the sort of social circumstances. And if you look at the social climate among African Americans, um, they are they are their social circles are uh, really really politically homogeneous. So African Americans in this country are far more likely to have uh, Democratic close friends than Hispanics, than Asian Americans, than whites. And I think that really influences a lot of their politics. Uh, and to the extent that, that some of those, that political homogeneity breaks down and becomes more diverse, I think you could see a significant shift in how people uh, are voting. Um, the other thing is like people didn't really think that, that it was possible for a Republican candidate to do as well among uh, white non-college voters as Trump did. And I think he kind of provided a blueprint uh, moving forward that this group, uh, culturally conservative, uh, but economically more sort of populist, is really winnable and winnable in big ways. But there are other constituencies yeah. that have that same basic uh, background. So Hispanics are also more culturally conservative um, and uh, sort of open to sort of more progressive economic policies and ideas. African-American Christians as well. So I think it's, it would be kind of foolish for us to sort of say, you know, the, the constituencies are, are locked in. Democrats will always win 85-90% of African-American support and 60-65% Hispanic support. That's, that's simply not going to happen. One group that doesn't get as much attention, but I just wondered whether your work has uncovered anything that you would find interesting to share with us this morning is um, Asian Americans. What are, what are you learning about them in your surveys? Or do you, are you able to pick anything up? Or is that just a, is there a percentage of the population so small that, that you don't, you can't make any generalizations or provide any interesting data? Uh, no, it is a, a fascinating group. It's actually, if you if you look at the immigrant populations, it is the fastest growing immigrant group in the country. Um, it's also one that is very difficult to pull because there are so many different nationalities and so many different languages. So to get a a really really good look at that group, you've got to interview in something more than English. And and most of our surveys um, are only conducted in English and Spanish just because of cost concerns. 
So it's, it's a difficult group to poll. Uh, it's all, also one that's been under, undergoing some political transition. In the, in the 90s, it was a fairly Republican constituency. It's moved far, far uh, on the Democratic side. I think next to African-Americans, it's the most Democratic constituency out there. Uh, so it's a growing group. It's fairly diverse, um, but also becoming uh, more Democratic. Uh, so I think it, it is one that I think that is going to be increasingly important and, and one that that the parties will probably uh, be forced to, to compete over more aggressively in the future. What 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 led to their being more likely to identify as Democrats? What, what's driving that? Why is that? They're, they're, they're yeah, well-educated. They're affluent. They're, they do well in American society. They have strong families. Why Democratic? Yeah, I think, honestly, it has a lot to do with uh, this idea of belonging. If you look at experiences of discrimination, uh, groups that, uh, that particularly um, uh, racial minorities that experience themselves discrimination become much more democratic-leaning. Uh, and there's been some survey, clever survey experiments that have been done that, that sort of prime people, uh, uh, example of Asian Americans, to think about times when they experience whether kind of microaggressions or just people questioning whether they're uh, really American. And those experiences, when primed, move them more towards the Democratic Party. Uh, so one theory is that, that that is driving their politics, that they are fairly affluent, um, uh, high levels of education. Uh, so that's part of, of the story, but I do think this this kind of experiential difference uh, drives their politics. That's fascinating because yeah. I never thought that they. Uh, I didn't. I didn't. I don't see a lot of media reports or examples of explicit overt discrimination against Asian Americans. There is this issue concerning schools and colleges and admissions, mm -hmm. which is an issue. But but Republicans more than Democrats attack that. So that's interesting. I I I I uh, I I I find that uh, actually I I'm not sure I find that persuasive. I mean I I I think there must be something else about um, their attitudes towards government and uh, community and collective action. But I but I but maybe that's a, a cultural stereotype that I'm struggling with. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, they are more liberal, right? So if you look at support, support for a variety of different economic policies, immigration, they're, they're actually fairly liberal. Um, on, on affirmative action, they're, they're one of the most supportive groups uh, after African-Americans. Phoebe? I had one last pressing conspiracy theory question, if we can go back to that. <laughs> so I was shocked by one of your results that said that Less than half of Americans and only one in five black Americans say they would get a free FDA approved COVID vaccine. That seems like something that's going to be really relevant, hopefully very soon. Could you tell us a little bit about I mean, I'm curious to hear if that you've been following kind of anti-vaxxing trends as well. Is that kind of the culmination of that trend growing or do you see that more as attributed to our political landscape right now? Yeah, this is something that uh, a lot of folks have been asking about for obvious reasons. Uh, I mean, the implications are, are, you know, cannot be overstated. So what we've found in, in our survey is fairly consistent with what our folks found that there's some significant hesitation and trepidation about, about taking even an FDA-approved 
pre-vaccine, which is how we worded the question. Uh, and there's been an actual decline in trust. So I think early on, support was a lot was a lot higher than it is now. We asked a follow-up question that a lot of other, other places haven't, but why, why you wouldn't uh, mm -hmm. take the vaccine? And the number one concern was safety, that it's moving really fast. There's concerns about it's been politicized, and there's just not the comfort level. So I think to the extent that you know, people can get comfortable with the process of the vaccine development and believe that the FDA and, and other important governmental bodies uh, have, are, are removed from the politics, I think you'll see increased support. But again, overall, it was really concerns about safety that was driving that concern. Interesting. I mean, it could be just a, I mean, I know that, that you know, for the well-educated and the you know, the Cornell graduates of the world, the idea that you wouldn't take a vaccine sounds so... <laughs> but there is a there is a healthy skepticism about... I mean, not having faith in institutions is is one way of saying it, and the other is just being skeptical of authority is another way of saying it. And the second way of saying it is a legitimate American feeling. Yeah. I, I, I'm not, I don't want to come to the defense of the <laughs> anti-vaccine people, but, you know, they're, they're, they're expressing some concern. And, and things are moving awfully fast. And pharmaceutical industry hasn't covered itself in glory yeah. all no, the time. That's true. Mm -hmm. And the Trump administration health people have sort of been all over the map. And so I, I, I don't know that that's so troubling, but maybe you do, Dan. Do you think it's troubling? Do you think it's a sign of, of a, of a underlying weakness in American, in American people? I, I mean, I think that some of the, these attitudes are soft and, and movable. So I, I don't tend to be overly concerned. We asked a, a question that I, I think is a little bit relevant here about whether public institutions and private industries are concealing information relevant to public health and welfare. And the two that come off the worst in this are the federal government and drug companies. Yeah. Uh, there's yeah. partisan differences in trust in the federal government that is absolutely being driven by Trump. Democrats are less likely to, to trust the federal government being transparent than Republicans. But across the board, people do not trust drug companies. Uh, there's greater That's support fair. for... <laughs> tech companies and news organizations and energy companies than, than the drug companies. Hmm. Saying a lot. Yeah, yeah, that is saying a lot. <laughs> yeah. well, but that also could be the overhang from a very serious opioid crisis that, yeah. that yeah. plagued America. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Well, this has been great. Dan, thank you very much. Um, I've learned a lot. I appreciate your taking the time with us. Thanks, Dan. It was great to be here. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.